This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Welcome to Health and Living with me, T. Xiaoyi. It's our Mind Matters segment today, and we're exploring mental health in the shadows of conflict and crises. Understandably, global geopolitical events, especially over the last year, have weighed heavily uh, on our minds, and the impact of wars, the climate crisis, natural disasters in our own backyard, disease outbreaks worldwide seem to be relentless and inescapable no matter where we are or how we are affected, right? And um, what is the mental health impact, especially on those who have witnessed or experienced disaster directly? And for the rest of us who may be exposed to such distressing events through social media, which we are on almost 24-7, what is the mental health impact on us as well? So we're going to be exploring this today with my guests, Dr. Mohammed Hanif bin Abdullah, President of the International Association for Disaster Mental Health, who's also a clinician in psychiatry and mental health, as well as Liana Mohammed Nawi, Clinical Psychologist and Director of Clinical Services at Thrive Well. Dr. Hanif and Liana, thank you so much for joining me today. How are the both of you? I'm good. Thank you so much. I'm good. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So, Dr. Hanif, if I can start with you, um, I understand you have already, uh, you know, had some experience working with people who are directly affected by conflict and crises through your work in the NGOs. Um, Perhaps you can... Tell us a little bit about um, what that work has been, where you have been to, and um, I guess give us a bit of a glimpse into how people who are directly uh, exposed to crises are affected in terms of their mental health and well-being. All right. I think I'll start with my experience. Uh, I've started off with hum- uh, tra- traveling around the world for humanitarian mission. So basically going to area of needs where we go and assess the needs at that particular place. And we given skills to the local population. And after that, I entered medical school. So becoming more of a medical missions. And after that, I saw there's a gap in terms of mental health. So my area of interest particularly is the first responders, mental health and victims of disaster. So that's where... Uh, I was I'm, I specialize in and to answer your question I think the impact of crisis on mental health can vary widely depending on the two major factors based on my observation is the nature of the crisis itself whether it's a man-made or whether it is a natural disaster research has shown that man-made disasters has a higher mental health toll on the civilians and also looking into the duration and the severity of the particular uh, crisis itself and the other variables that we have to look into is the individual itself so high-risk groups particularly we're talking about um, children elderly people with mental health conditions people with mental uh, people with medical conditions vulnerable population and these people are highly, I mean, particularly susceptible to more negative mental health impact of a crisis. Mm. So to go deeper into that, of course, uh, some of the common mental health challenges that individuals directly affected with crises may face will be grief and loss. And crisis involve loss, whether it be a loved one's home's possessions or the sense of security. So when there's a loss of sense of normalcy, that's where the grief happens. And grief is a normal process until 
unless it become very complicated. And also, it can lead to social isolation, displacement, quarantine, social distancing, social distancing measures during crisis can lead to social isolation. Besides that, it can also lead to PTSD. Uh, exposure to traumatic events such as natural disasters, conflict or accidents can lead to post-traumatic stress disorder. Symptoms include flashback memories, intrusive memories, nightmares and severe anxiety. And it would be very interesting to look into how people cope with that crisis. And if it is not in a healthy way, some people will cope it by using substance. So substance abuse is another area that we have to look into whenever we go into disaster areas or people dealing with crisis. Mm. uh, Liana, what happens when the mental health uh, effects acute as well as over the longer term, are not addressed. What has the research found in terms of uh, the impact of not addressing these mental health issues uh, and how this could lead to intergenerational impact? Okay. Um, I think, be it acute or even long term, um, so basically, if these things are not addressed, right, um, it will definitely lead to when we're talking about basic needs, it will lead to, of course, impaired daily functioning. So what does that mean? So it means that like, um, so if we were, you know, if we need to go to work, then we are not productive or we are not able to take care of even our normal daily meals or even we have like um, no disturbances in our sleep, right? So that's what we um, focus more if you're talking about impaired daily functioning. Um, then, of course, it will lead to chronic pro- chronic health issues, right? Um, so, I mean, of course, Otani, if you can just uh, jump in, but um, yeah. it also includes you know, those cardiovascular yes. diseases, right? diseases. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then, of course, um, probably any autoimmune diseases, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and um, so, if so, that would be what we call it if these things are not addressed, right? And, and as you shared earlier on, because it will definitely impact our um, basic needs, yeah. Um, so, if we're talking about an intergenerational impact, so if let's say. The, the, I mean, we, we really have to acknowledge, right, that um, if these mental health issues are not addressed at the parental level, it will definitely have an impact on their um, next generation. Why is that so? Okay, um, because if let's say the parents themselves do not address these issues, um, they will have struggles with their parenting styles, right? Um, and it will lead to difficulties for them to create a safe and a nurturing environment for their children. So this will then perpetuate the cycle. So basically, um, the, ch- the perpetuate cycle of trauma and will, of course, adversely impact um, the next generation, which includes their own mental health as well. Mm. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Hanif, um, resources are often scarce mm. and have to be prioritised mm. in times of emergencies. We don't have to think about conflicts in um, you know war-torn countries, we can look within Malaysia mm. in the events of floods, for mm-hmm. instance. Um, that is a huge emergency that um, robs people of um, homes, possessions, sometimes mm-hmm. uh, lives and livelihoods. Right? Yes, you're right. Yeah. And, and you see then resources having to be prioritized to to meet basic, often physical needs first. Mm-hmm. So then, um, how do we? make sure that their mental health needs are also included? That's a very good question. I think uh, if you look back at the Maslow hierarchy of need, so basically that is the uh, one of the 
the pyramid uh, for Maslow hierarchy of needs. The bottom of the pyramid shows the physiological needs, which is safety, security, physiological needs, food, shelter, security, which I think is part of mental health itself. So it's important for us to assess, to, 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 to get that thing sorted first. So that's the basic needs. How do we want to talk about higher stuff when the basic needs are not being fulfilled? You are particularly right. We have to focus on the basic needs. And I think that is part of mental health in the mm. spectrum as well. But looking into that, yes, um, when the resources are scarce, then we need to prioritise. I mean, I will definitely go to basic needs first. Then after that, I think it requires a strategic and cost-effective approaches. So what do I mean by that? We have to have a very targeted intervention. So perhaps if there resources is scarce, we have to look into high-risk population. So as mentioned before, we have to look into kids, children and adolescents, people with mental health conditions, people with medical conditions, elderly, uh, pregnant ladies. So these are the people that we want to focus on. But apart from that, how do we do it? So perhaps one of the methods that I have practiced as well in my NGO is to train the local champions. So it's more of a task-shifting approach. So implement task-shifting approaches where non-specialized healthcare workers are trained to provide basic mental health services. So this can help increase the availability of mental health support within the communities. So train the local champions, train the Ketua Kampong, train the, the liaison officers in the particular place. So prepare them beforehand before a disaster happens. So community-based disaster prevention program is something that we can do even prior to a disaster. So that we prepare the community leaders, provide them skills with mental health first aids, psychological first aids, so they are prepared in case of disaster happen, what they need to do. And I believe in integration of mental health system. So coming in and doing something new will be very ad hoc. So I believe that integrate mental services into existing healthcare system and community support structures is the way to go. So this can maximise the use of available resources and reach a broader population. And Liana, from Thrive Well's perspective, how would you view that task-shifting approach? How do you uh, practice it in the communities that you work with? Yeah, okay. Um, so in Thrive Well itself, we have this thing called the um, BRAVE Workshop, right? Um, which stands for Building Resilience, Acceptance, Valiance and Empowerment Program. So this is a capacity building program which is we targeted uh, directly or specifically to our frontline professionals. So these frontline professionals are not just limited to only healthcare but also to our social workers as well as the education sector. Okay. Um, so what does this program do? So basically, the objective of it is we want to create awareness and understanding of trauma as a whole, mm -hmm. as well as for them to get some understanding on what a trauma-informed care approach is, right? Um, and also, uh, the understanding of second-hand trauma, because these frontliners, they may not be directly impacted by the trauma, but they will be hearing, hearing and maybe visualising based on what is shared um, with them. And of course, one thing that we tend to forget, you know, as frontliners, is the importance of self-care. So mm. we we make sure that this is part of the program because we want to really remind uh, these um, frontliners, you know, that at the end of the day, self-care is important because if you don't take care of yourself, how are you going to take care of um, other people? Yeah. So basically, the outcome for this program is eventually we want them to have a better capacity, right, to understand and cope with trauma, um, to also, uh, you know, inform them or get them to understand better of what adverse childhood experiences are, right, and better crisis management for them to, you know, be able to deal with this from a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah. Can you give me some examples of which groups of frontliners you're actually working with or training? Um, I think one of it, which <laughs> Dr. Yeah. mentioned, is our community leaders, yeah. Um, and we are also, recently, we, have, we are solely targeting teachers as well, 
Yeah, because uh, teachers, yes, they, even though they deal a lot with children, and I mean, they're not directly like dealing with their mental health per se, but because they would see the child's behaviour at school um, and not just that, but also in terms of their learning abilities, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so sometimes teachers, they feel stuck. They'll be like, okay, what am I supposed to do with this child? Um, but because they don't have the understanding, you know, that, that there are certain traumatic impact that would actually impact a child's ability at school, right? So recently, we are actually promoting this program out to teachers as well. Um, and of course, um, any f- uh, health workers and our uh, you know mental health professionals. That's, that's how the local structure works. And I think that's the best way to work with the local leaders. That's why I think um, empowering our community to prepare for a disaster will be the best way forward. And I think Brave Workshop is one of the avenues where people can actually get the knowledge on how to prepare themselves better. And um, it's very sustainable in that context. Yeah, yeah just mm. to add on, um, the B40 communities, they are very susceptible mm. to a lot of, we call it the adverse childhood experiences, right? And and we tie it back to the basic needs that you mentioned earlier. Because of course, in B40 communities, at the end of the day, that is what they need to prioritise first. Yeah? But it doesn't mean that we have to neglect their mental health needs as well. So by training the community leaders, by training the people directly related to this population, I think it will be a further, you know, it will create a much positive outcome, I would say, in terms of, um, you know, betterment in terms of their mental health as well. Yeah. And I will also suggest, Liana, if you agree with me, the government agencies and officials as mm. well, because I think uh, whenever disaster happens, you need to have the knowledge of trauma-informed care. Sure. Right? Yes, definitely. So for for us to have a better policy mm-hmm. in terms of disaster management. Mm. Would, would yeah. that uh, be limited to or extend beyond just those with working within the healthcare sector, Dr. Hanif? No, I think, I think uh, it's beyond that. It's beyond that because I think uh, it's a very collaborative approach when a disaster happens. Uh, I mean, from the government sectors, NGOs, uh, healthcare facilities and all. So I think having that knowledge is very important for us to have a better policies, better work mechanism from top to down. So I think it's, it's highly essential for all of us to know and uh, at least aware of what we need to do, what is trauma-informed care. So at least whenever that we do any policies or whenever actions that we take, we are well informed. Mm. Yeah. Alright, we will go for a quick break and come back to continue this discussion. Dr. Muhammad Hanif bin Abdullah, President of the International Association for Disaster Mental Health, in the studio with me along with Liana Muhammad Nawi, Clinical Psychologist and Director of Clinical Services at Thrive Well. We're discussing mental health in the shadows of conflict and crises. Stay tuned to Health Health and Living, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Health and Living with me, T. Shao Ik. For our Mind Matters segment today, I'm joined in the studio by Dr. Mohammad Hanif bin Abdullah, President of the International Association for Disaster Mental Health. He's also a clinician in psychiatry and mental health. And also Liana Mohammad Nawi, Clinical Psychologist and Director for Clinical Services in Thrive Well. We're discussing mental health in the shadows of conflict and crises. And we don't have to look very far beyond our own borders to actually look at the impact of disasters because a crisis could be something like a natural disaster like floods um, hitting your community. And of course, if we sort of um, widen our lens to look at global geopolitical events. Um, there have there has been so much happening. The impact of climate crisis as well has a very direct impact on each and every one of us. And so um, 
when it comes to talking about the mental health impact, I think um, all of us will be affected in some way. And um, we can't sort of hide behind our doors and say, this is happening to someone else. Um, we're all exposed to it um, directly and indirectly. And actually, Dr. Hanif, I'm curious because you started off the conversation talking about how you've gone on humanitarian and medical missions to places of um, conflict and crisis. And how has it affected you personally and how have you coped? Right? And it, because we talk so much about um, making sure that people have those coping skills, yeah. perhaps some personal insights from you. Yeah. When you go to area of needs or a disaster area, you really see people in real need. And that sort of affects you. Whenever I come back from a medical mission, it takes me a certain duration of time to get back into my normal routine. So I will spend time alone reflecting the whole incident, what happened during that particular medical mission. And it takes me some time to get back. And I think it's very important, as what Liana mentioned uh, just now, uh, the idea of self-care. Sometimes the idea of wanting to go and help is something that we want to do. But at the same time, it's very important for us to look into our own self-care. So one of the things that we have practiced as well after a medical uh, missions or humanitarian mission is to get back and have a debriefing session where we'll talk about the experiences that we have encountered, sort of reprocessing the memories and also reprocessing the experience that we have gone through at a particular disaster area. So that's something that I do quite often whenever that I go for a mission. Liana, for the rest of us, uh, we're not going on humanitarian missions like Dr. Hanif is. We're not um, perhaps very often affected directly by um, crises or emergencies, but we read about it all the time. And we're seeing it more and more as we scroll through yeah. social media. Why do we feel affected by this? Okay, um, so I think to answer that, maybe we can look at a few factors, I would say. Um, I think the first factor would be in the umbre under the umbrella of empathy and compassion. Because at the end of the day, we are humans, right? Um, so human beings, we do have a natural capacity um, for empathy and compassion. So when we witness or hear or read about the, you know, like suffering of others, um, we can't help it. As in like, you know, it will invoke very strong emotional responses, such as, you know, we, we will feel sad, we will feel concerned or possibly angry, yeah? So, um, that would be one of the factors, I would say. The second one, um, I think, uh, let's look also into the sense of, we call it interconnectedness, right? Um, because we are so connected with the news and information about these crises and disasters, and it is readily accessible anytime, 24-7, yeah? So, this constant exposure... Right, it creates a sense of connection, you know, to those affected. Right? Okay, so of course it will then lead to my first factor, lah, which will then lead to our emotional response. Okay. Mm -hmm. And of course, thirdly, um, I would say the psychological impact of things, because you know, when we learn about these disasters and when it triggers our feelings of um possible anxiety, worry, or even distress, um, and so this unpredictability um, and potential for this widespread impact can lead to sense sense of you know vulnerability, right? We'll feel very vulnerable, right? Um, and also concern for our own safety and well-being. Yeah. So that's interesting. Yes. Because <laughs> we're talking um, psychologically. Yes. Yeah, yeah. You would imagine we are distanced from it in that mm -hmm. sense. Why do we feel that vulnerability? 
Because sometimes, even though you see about it, you you maybe for someone is the first time that they've encountered such kind of like disaster, for example. But so they will have this visualization, you know, like oh no, what if this happens? You know, like to my house, right? Yeah. So then they will start having visuals, and this can create or invoke, you know, um, feelings of anxiety or worriedness. Mm. Yeah. So that is what we call like psychological impact. Yeah. yeah. I think if I may add, mm-hmm. it's also I think one of the components would be identification and personalization. Mm. As we read about the crises, or we might unconsciously identify with the individuals affected, or imagine how we would feel in the similar circumstances. I, for an instance, was very much affected when um, the group of doctors in the UK, um, also at the disaster area in Palestine, was crying for help. So being a doctor myself, I felt that I can identify, I can personalise that, that, that condition and that really affected. I think, I think that kind of identification, personalization, and also media influence, I guess. Um, I think the way that the crisis being portrayed in the media can play a significant role. Uh, the emotional impact can be heightened through vivid images, personal stories and compelling narratives, making the events more relatable to each and every one of us yeah. as a human being. Yeah, again, just to add on to yeah. that, yeah, um, you're right in terms of the vivid images. Okay, Because imagine our social media like 30, 40 years ago, it's like heavily reliant on newspapers yeah? Um, yeah. or even, even the news. But uh, even in news, they don't really show... You know, sometimes they will censor pictures here and there. And even mm. in newspapers, when you read about it, um, there, there are not much visuals there. So we tend to, you know, have certain kind of imagination. Like, okay, how this would be, certain visualization. But right now, with social media 24-7, they even show like live of what is mm. actually happening on the ground. So it tends to scare people as well, you know, like, oh no, this is really happening or it's not just in my imagination or it's not even like in the movies. This is real, yeah. yeah. And if you go deeper, I think if you go into psychologically, the human brain is wired to respond emotionally to distressing uh, situations. So if we read about crises, our emotional centers, if you go a bit deeply, it will be amygdala, will be activated and leading to emotional responses like fear, scary, empathy, sadness. So it can lead to that kind of situation. Mm, yeah. yeah. And social media itself has algorithms mm. that will pick up what you're looking at and then, you know, sort of feed more of the same thing, right? W- wouldn't you agree? Yeah, yeah I, I would agree with that. I mean... Yeah, because right now social media is intelligent, <laughs> yeah, with the <laughs> algorithm and, and all. Yeah, because and the algorithm is also designed, you know, to bring out sensationalized news, right? As well as news that are we call it emotionally charged, you know, that they know like okay, this can create certain emotions in the public. Okay, no, let's show this. Yeah. Um so yeah, so that I mean if you're talking about algorithm, unfortunately that is the way, you know, like the technology world is yeah. now. Yeah, I would say it's very scary mm. because I mean to a certain extent it makes us to become more tribal. Uh, what I mean by that is the algorithm amplification because whenever that we seek a news, we'll be fit with the same news over and over. Mm. So I think um, it doesn't give you the bigger perspective of things. Unless you are aware that you're being fed with that kind of information, then you will not look into other information to stabilize 
globalize the news. Mm-hmm. So I think it's very much important for us to be aware how the algorithm application works. Otherwise, we, I think we will all be in filter bubbles or echo chambers on our own. Mm-hmm. So I think you are right. Um, um, and also lack of uh, context and accuracy at times. So we have to be aware and how it works so that we can take a better informed action to actually know the whole context of a situation. Mm. Yeah. You know, whether we are sort of able to switch it off or whether we may be going down this doom-scrolling kind of rabbit hole, mm. um, how do we recognise the effects on ourselves? How do we recognise that we are becoming negatively affected in terms of emotions and behaviours, Diana? I think um, maybe some of the things that we can look into ourselves is we, we tend to portray more negative emotions, right? So I think one of the things could be we tend to get angry easily, like for no reason, yeah? Um, and also maybe at times we may have, we realise that we may have more and more intrusive thoughts, yeah? So as what Dr. Henry mentioned, because when we are feed, we are, we are, we are, we are being feeding news that is constantly, um, you know, like, news that are like disasters and all and if it's not balanced out with any other positive news I would say then our thoughts will start to take over in a way whereby you know it will be very intrusive whereby you know it's like there will be persistent you know negative thoughts um, in our mind Um, and these kind of persistent thoughts can actually somehow start to interfere with our daily functioning yeah so then it goes back to our the ones that we talked earlier about basic needs. yeah. So, you know, um, if we notice that our basic needs are already affected, so that is where I think it's a sign for us, you know, to take a step back and mm. look at, at mm. what's going Any on. Any other you know. signs that you'd like to share? Red flags? Yeah, I think, I think first of all, we need to recognise that... Um, how do I put it, yeah? Um, it's, a, it's a normal reaction for us to feel sad, to feel angry to a situation. But of course, if it is prolonged and it affects our function, then it becomes a red flag. What I mean by that is if you're working, then you tend to start making mistakes. You're unable to focus at your work. You're being reprimanded at the workplace. Or if you're studying, you're unable to focus. You start making mistakes. People are noticing there's a change in your behaviour for a period of time. Then I think I think you have to be aware. And um, if that thing happens, I would suggest the best way is to go and get help. Uh, because if it's start affecting functions, we did. We really need to intervene. Yeah. I want to talk about sleep a little bit because yeah. that's something that maybe people dismiss mm-hmm. uh, the impact mm-hmm. on sleep. Is that a significant sort of indicator that, hey, you're not processing or coping well? I would say yes, yeah, because sleep is, again, is part of our basic needs, right? Because if we, if sleep is disturbed, it will definitely impact our cognitive functioning. Um but then sleep can also go both ways, meaning like it's either you you lack of sleep or you sleep more, right? Mm. So um so because I think for public out there normally they 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 will just focus on the lack of sleep, but they don't focus so much on the you know that you're sleeping more can actually it's also actually a sign you know that something is 
you know, maybe you just need to take a look at yourself, yeah, um, and probably need to work on that as mm. well. Yeah. Yeah. I think I agree with that. I think if you really want to look into the symptoms, we can actually divide it into emotional component, we can divide it into behavior component, and we, have, we can divide it into cognitive effects. But you're right, sleep is one of the red flag as well. So uh, like what Liana mentioned, it can be lack of sleep, difficult to initiate sleep, intermittent awakenings in the, in the, in the middle of the sleep, or also hypersomnia, which is excessive sleep. Mm. So these are all the symptoms that we might want to look into. And you feel tired the next day, despite having that sort of a sleep. So, of course, we need to interview because it will affect your work. So that's number one. Number two is also the cognitive aspects and also the emotional aspect where you feel hopeless, depressed, feeling low mood almost every day for a period of time. So these are the things that you really need to look into. And I think interestingly, if you talk about crisis and disaster, there's also term, a uh, few terms that we have to look into is compassion, fatigue, uh, secondary traumatization. These are the terms that are being used in research to describe the secondary effect. What I mean by that is people are not directly uh, involved in the disaster itself, like us. We are reading the news, we are watching um, social medias, we are seeing the images, the videos and all. So there are a lot of terms that are being used to describe this kind of condition, such as secondary traumatization, vicarious trauma, mm-hmm. compassion, fatigue. And to a certain extent, I would argue that certain authorities are using these concepts to actually go on and do atrocities outside there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What I mean by that is, to a certain extent, for certain disaster or let's say man-made disasters, it has, I mean, for an example, I have to go very direct. For an example is what's happening uh, in Israel and Palestine. Now it's been three months. So some people get tired of this news. So that's the term that we call as compassion fatigue. So when people get tired, they just want to detach themselves. Enough is enough. I'm not going to have a look at this. Certain people will use these concepts to continue doing atrocities so, because they know that people will get tired. And also we can experience that. I think another thing that comes to my mind right now is during the COVID pandemic. It was so long, about one to two years. And I think working at the hospital, we have dealt with first responders. And usually disaster is very short. Uh, we go for a bit, then we come back and we go for another mission. But when it prolongs, then you get tired. You get emotional exhaustion. Mm-hmm. And this is something that we need to be aware of. Mm, all right. We'll quickly go for another break and come back to discuss um, what can we do? When do we need to recognise that perhaps we need some support and help? Uh, in the studio with me today, Liana Mohamad Nawi, Clinical Psychologist and Director of Clinical Services at Thrive Well, and Dr. Mohamad Hanif bin Abdullah, President of the International Association for Disaster Mental Health. We'll be right back on Health and Living, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Health and Living with me, T. Shaoik. For our Mind Matters segment today, Liana Mohamed Nawi, Clinical Psychologist and Director of Clinical Services at Thrive Well in the studio with me together with Dr. Mohamed Hanif bin Abdullah, President of the International Association for Disaster Mental Health. We're discussing mental health in the shadows of conflict and crises. Um, And this could include um, not just things like the war in Gaza, but also perhaps... Uh, uh, abstract concept like the climate crisis which we read so much about perhaps we see some small effects of it um, but all we feel are this sort of sense of doom and that everything is going downhill we can't do anything and you know um, Liana before the break we talked about recognising the negative effects on our emotions behaviours as well as uh, cognitive functioning now at what point um, should we say okay, um, this is 
getting perhaps too extreme uh, or maybe not even really waiting to the point that it gets too extreme, right? At what point should somebody seek some sort of a support and help? And does it need to be professional mental health help? Or, you know, what can we sort of seek within our circles as well? If you could help us walk us through uh, what mental health mm. support should look like and who would need it? Okay. Um, that's a very good question, actually, shall we? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because, yeah, because I think nowadays people only think, okay, if you're worse, then only you go and seek therapy, right? But sometimes therapy can also come at the early stage. And um, possibly even before that, but before that, it's not so much therapy per se, but it's more on support, okay? So let's, so first things first, how do we recognize the signs? So I think there are definitely things that people have. They, they have kind of done, meaning like, okay, I'm sad today. I just need to talk to someone about it, right? So that is actually a very good step, right? So because when you have all these, you know, emotions, or I mean negative emotions that you just need to vent it out, um, yeah, seek someone that you probably would, I mean, trust or know that would listen to you yeah, and have that conversation. Having conversation... Um, Definitely helps because sometimes the other party can also give a different perspective. What if your conversation is just ranting about all this bad news and then you go down the cycle? <laughs> <laughs> um, so I so think, I think like, yeah, um, sure. like what Dr. Hanif mm. said earlier about debriefing when he comes back mm. from a mission, what is it that you should be sharing in these conversations that sort of helps to take you out of the bad news cycle but helps you to process your emotions? Okay, I mean... Because when we're talking with our friend, you're right, because we tend to rant, right? And sometimes the response that we get from our friend can even be, it doesn't make things better, okay? So, I think that is where, like, if you feel like, oh no, this is not working out anymore, okay? I think I need to take that next step. Talk, talk to someone independent, you no, know, or a professional who knows, like, who, who could probably understand, you know, what I'm going through, or at least really listen to my emotions and maybe how to process them. Yeah, I think that is the key at the end of the day, right? So maybe that would be, I would say that would be the time, you know, for this individual to go and seek professional help. Mm. But, but, but at the same time, for general public as well, right? Meaning like when you vent to a friend, right? I mean, if you yourself, you, you feel like, oh no, I'm, I'm, I don't think I'm able to help my friend out. Mm. So you, as a friend, maybe you could do that you know, psychoeducation as well to to the to your to your friend to actually say like, okay, you know, maybe this is a bit too much for me to handle. Why don't you seek a professional as well? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, I think I think uh, we need to remember that everyone copes differently. So it's important to find strategies that resonates with you. What I will do is one of the things that I work with my patients is to look back at distressing memories and events that happened in your life and how you coped before. So for some people. Uh, they don't like journaling. So you tell them, hey, what do, why don't you try journaling? Mm -hmm. But it's just, I don't like writing. Why you ask me to do journal? Mm -hmm. So I think it really looks into the, the, the individual itself. So you have to look what helped us before and try to look into that coping mechanism. That's one thing. But going to what you asked just now, Shaikh, I think the cognitive processing, the ability to cognitively process and make sense of distressing information can influence how individuals adapt over time. Some may naturally process the information and gradually move towards resolution while some others will have difficulties. In that context, then they have to go and seek professional help. Mm -hmm. But again, basic things. I will go with 3M. This is something that I usually tell um, my, my patients, which is movement, meaningful connection, 
and mindfulness and meditation. So what I mean by that is engage yourself in regular physical activities. Exercise has been shown to have positive impact on mood, reducing stress and anxiety. Mindfulness and meditation, practice mindfulness and meditation to cultivate a sense of calm and presence. So mindful breathing or guided meditation can be effective in managing your, your emotional distress. Besides that, social connectedness, meaningful engagement. So I think we are all social human beings and, uh, and, and research has shown that social connectedness is a protective of mental health. So whenever that you go and get yourself engaged with others, it somehow helps in your mental health. Mm. So these are just basic things. Of course, if you can go more than that, we can go into arts and creativity, we can go into establishing routine, especially during war and crisis because human beings are... are, are Human beings function the best when things are certain. And whenever crisis and disaster happen, things are uncertain. So we can only focus on things that we can modify. So when you have a sense of routine, then you have the sense of control. So that helps you in terms of a mental health in a larger context. Yeah. Just to add on a little bit more, um, okay, uh, if you're talking about like, you know, when to seek help and whatnot, and since Dr. Hani mentioned about resources and coping mechanism, I think it's you know, for the benefit of the listeners out there, uh, maybe... Once you feel stuck, right? I think that's the important. Once you feel stuck, meaning you have exhausted your current resources, you feel stuck, you don't know where else to move. Okay, then let's go and start seeking professional mm-hmm. help. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's nothing wrong with exactly. that. Exactly. Right? Yes. Also, social connectedness is not the same thing as being on social media. I think social media actually traps us in a bubble. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is the very opposite of sort of reaching out to make those meaningful connections. So I want to just sort of, uh, towards the tail end of this conversation, talk a bit about uh, reflecting on our own social media habits and how do we get out of this bad news cycle. Uh, for those of us who care about what's going on in the world, uh, and you know, in our own country, how do we make sure we stay informed? without, you know, spiralling down the bad news cycle. Um, Would each of you like to just share a little bit of advice about how can we make our social media habits a little bit healthier, Dr. Honey? Okay, I think finding the right balance is a personal journey and it's important for us to adjust strategies. Uh, I think some of the things that I might be able to share here would be I call it as attention diet. So basically, it designates a specific time of the day that you want to have a look at the news. That's time and also reliable resources. So you know where you want to find the information from and what particular time. So you know, say about 6 to 6.30, this is the time I'm going to go and have a look at it. So that's the only time that you're going to have a look at it. Then later on, you diversify your news diet. So consciously seek out positive news as well and stories that highlight resilience, progress and solutions so that you balance up. It's not only negative um, news, but also you balance up with positive news. So it sort of gives you a better perspective and sense of gratefulness as well. Practice mindful consumption. So be mindful of how news consumption affects your mental and emotional well-being because when you're aware, then you'll take better action about taking self-care methods or also... um, I mean, looking into uh, news or social media in more conscious manner. And I think everyone, uh, I think if you take an action... So instead of passively consuming news, consider engaging in constructive actions. So when we do something, it gives us a sense of purpose and meaning. So perhaps we can actually involve ourselves in any 
uh, actions that we're going to do to help out with that particular crisis. So that so, also helps. Mm, so, so that's uh, really moving away from just sort of um, being this passive uh, consumer of, of, of social media. Social media. Yeah. Maybe things like volunteering, would you oh. say that that's uh, useful? Yeah. I think absolutely. Taking actions or volunteering can be a, can be a powerful uh, mechanism or channel because it can actually channel your feeling of hopelessness and it gives you a sense of purpose. And I think that, that that's really, really, um, for, for me, I think it, it really uh, meaningful impact for a particular person. Yeah. yeah. And I think for those, for example, who are not, because there, there would be people who might not, you know, be able to volunteer for whatever mm-hmm. reason. Not for everyone. Correct, yeah. yeah. So I think what I would say to these people is, at the end of the day, you have to know your own limitations. Meaning, for example, if let's say currently what you're only able to do is to donate, so you know, then then that is mm. that is it. That is the that is your own limitation, and, and you don't have to donate much. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Based on your own capacity, yeah. right? So if you're not able to do more, that's okay. Right? Keep reminding yourself, like that's okay. I've done the best that I can, mm. right? So I think this is something that also people tend to forget. Yeah. Okay, mm. um, and another thing, if you're talking about coping, yeah, I think in terms of the social media, um, I think we also need to do a bit of emotional check in. I would say. Every time, you know, when we go through news, uh, if it's heavy for you, just, just okay, once you're done with the news, take a step back, have about a few minutes to yourself and reflect. Like, okay, um, what kind of, what, what does this news make me feel, you know? Yeah, so like, you know, then you will be like, okay, I think I feel a bit more angry today reading this news. So let's do a bit of self-care, you know, like just do anything so that you can help to process your anger, emotions or your sadness and whatnot. Yeah, I would recommend that. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else that uh, the team at Thrive Well is seeing from clients, you know, uh, I understand that you're seeing more people coming in sort of talking about these things distressing them, right? Yeah, and if we're talking about that, I think the main theme that comes up from that is actually the theme of helplessness. Mm. Yeah, um, because for from their own personal issues, maybe they themselves are feeling helpless in certain way. Yeah, so when they read about like things like war, so they, they resonate with them, meaning like, you know, like, okay, this those individuals are also helpless, like how I was, right? So what can I do to help them? But at the end of the day, yeah, so that is why it goes back to know your own, like current resources that you have and your own limitations and what is the best that you can do for now. Yeah, I would say, yeah. 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 And I would say powerful. the self-care is very important. So remember that self-care is not selfish. So setting boundaries on news overconsumption is, and then taking proactive methods and steps towards maintaining our mental well-being. I think caring without overconsumption mm. is something that we want to look into. Yeah, yeah, I think there is maybe even a sense of guilt that if we want to switch off, oh, it means I don't care about you know mm. all the suffering that people are going through. Mm. But that's not true, right? Mm. You can't care if you're overwhelmed and yes. not coping well as yes, well. Yes, that's true. Yeah. Any um, very very quick final thoughts or message and that could perhaps include uh, a bit of a call to action for people who want to do something like uh, join uh, one of your workshops Um, if you're talking about okay just to summarize I think at the end of the day do do the best that we can based on our own um, current limitations and boundaries Self-care is very important. Yeah? And of course, if somehow you f- do feel like volunteering, you know, or want to know more about what we do at ThriveWell, um, you may, you know, go to our ad- uh, web- website, www.thethrive.center, or you may call us at 018-9003-247. Or you may WhatsApp us as well. Yes, we'll put those contact details on our podcast. Sure. Dr. Honey, final message? 
I would say, uh, let us don't forget about self-care. And my message should be the 3M. Remember about movement. Remember about meaningful connection, engagement, and also mindfulness. So hopefully, uh, we can empower our public and also a journey of understanding ourselves. I think once we understand ourselves better, then we can take care of our mental health better. All right. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with me today, Dr. Mohammad Hanif bin Abdullah, President of the International Association for Disaster Mental Health, and Liana Mohammad Nawi, Clinical Psychologist and Director for Clinical Services at Thrive Well. This has been Mind Matters on Health and Living, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.